Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the east Western Hemisphere. Today, we'll be talking about innovation and the companies driving change. Okay, Jim, now remember our promise, but tell us about Canada. <laughs> yeah. Innovation is in every aspect of the oil business, and Canada is front and center in this development. Many of these innovative ideas are a bit technical, but Corey made me promise to keep the math and engineering geek talk to a minimum, and he will keep the lawyering talk to a minimum. So it's on, my friend. Premier Jason Kenney in August appointed Doug Schweitzer as Alberta's new Minister of Jobs, Economy, and Innovation. A couple of different funds have been set up to create conditions for innovation and fund early-stage technology companies. There are typical tax credits and even a grant program. Since Alberta is more than just energy, this extends to other industries as well. But you all know where I'm coming back to. Many of these innovations are happening at the biggest companies. Husky Energy partners with the University of Calgary's engineering department to create better asphalt. Suncor has a partnership with a First Nations tribe in Ontario for the Adelaide Wind Farm. What? What? Big Oil does renewables? Here's a not-so-secret secret. They all do. Suncor is also a co-founder of the Evoke Innovations. Along with Synovus, Evoke Innovations is a clean tech fund where Silicon Valley-style startups can leverage the professional experience and gravitas of big oil. In general, innovation in the clean tech space revolves around one of seven areas. One, digital audio and gas technology. Two, land and well site remediation. Three, cleaner fuels. Four, novel hydrocarbon extractions. Five, low emission value-added products. Six, water technology. And seven, methane monitoring and abatement. Enbridge is, of course, well known for the pipelines. But did you know they're building a solar farm in Alberta? What? Yeah, like I said, all of them. Construction is just starting with first power expected in Q1 2021. Now, this is where I have to suppress my natural urge for geek talk. Enbridge Technology and Innovation Lab. Oh. They have some machine learning and AI technology that will fundamentally change the economics and efficiency of wind power. Okay, deep breath. This one really gets me going. In a partnership with Microsoft, they have millions of data points along their vast pipeline network such that they can create a digital twin of the pipeline and surrounding terrain. By using Microsoft HoloLens glasses, they can see a 3D image of the pipeline as well as hot and cold spots, metal fatigue, surrounding ground condition, spin it, flip it, and maybe even play some Hendrix. All right, maybe the Hendrix is a future enhancement. Imperial may be the mothership of innovation and research in the Canadian oil patch. They started a research department 100 years ago. In the last 20 years, they've invested $2.1 billion in research. They have an innovative extraction technology that has the possibility of lowering greenhouse gas emissions by an astounding 90% and 
and lowering freshwater usage by 99%. Imperial is also one of the leaders in using satellite technology to identify methane emissions worldwide. Remember now, we can't see methane, and until the sulfur mercaptans are added, we can't smell it either. Being able to spot methane emissions is a huge breakthrough in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. To me, where Imperial really stands out is in their mining reclamation operations. Before a project even begins, they have a team that collects seeds from native plants, and amazingly, they collect the topsoil and subsoil root debris. They have a team, not a person, a team that studies how animals can be attracted and encouraged to remain on reclaimed land. That, my friends, is what stewardship of the boreal forest looks like. Wow, that's that's very interesting. All right, now tell us about the country of California. Uh, I mean, tell us about the U.S. <laughs> In the research world, basic research is a leapfrog, 10x, moonshot kind of research. Think Elon Musk's SpaceX or fracking. Applied research is making the current process better kind of research. Think Henry Ford. Applied research can be implemented very quickly as the ecosystem that it will fall into is there or mostly there. Henry Ford didn't invent assembly line production. He just made it better. Basic research needs context, an ecosystem to be implemented into. In the case of SpaceX, SpaceX, Musk is actually building the ecosystem. In the case of hydraulic fracking, Edward Roberts received patent number 59936 for stuffing and igniting 20 pounds of gunpowder down an artesian well in 1865. Increased production by 1,200%. 80 years later, Floyd Ferris' experiments in the Houghton gas field in Kansas in 1947 failed, but increased, uh, failed, but uh, he created a new process. The process was used, but fell out of favor due to the uh, expense of it. About 50 years later, when George Mitchell, sadly for me, no relation, combined hydraulic fracking with horizontal drilling to get the process we have today. Such is the case of basic research overstepping its ecosystem. And that's playing out in California right now. Last week, Governor Gavin Newsom made an executive decree. The California State Congress wasn't given a vote on this. The decree was that no new light or medium-duty gasoline or diesel vehicles will be sold after Jan 1st, 2035. Governor Newsom also, also announced he will ask the California legislature to look at banning fracking in 2024. It is important to note, Cali has a waiver derived from a 1970s law from the federal government to create its own gasoline standards. And as you can imagine, that is being evaluated now. So let's look at the implications to the infrastructure, starting with electricity generation in the grid. This summer saw a blazing hot summer in much of California and millions of people without power for AC or fans. California does not have power generation to meet its own needs on peak days right now. Adding more demand will only exacerbate the problem. Even if it did have enough generation, the distribution grid is old and maxed out. 
If Kali wants to add more demand, this has to be updated. The cost of that will run into the billions. The consequences of overburdening the power lines is playing out now in the news. And on top of that, the state's last nuclear plant, Diablo Canyon, is set to be decommissioned in 2025. That's 2,256 megawatt hours that needs to be replaced now. Unclear how that deficit will be met. Finally, let's get to the energy that must be replaced that is currently being supplied by gasoline and diesel engines. Californians drive about 180 million miles a day, as stated by the California Department of Transportation. The average electric vehicle, EV, gets 3.5 miles per kilowatt hour as per the Department of Energy's fueleconomy.gov site. That means if California wants to replace all the energy being supplied by gasoline and diesel, they will need to generate 63,000 more megawatts every day. Add on to that, the state's laws for developing new hydrocarbon-based power generation are economically and environmentally unfeasible. So where's the power going to come from? So let's move on to the death sentence this decree equates to for the refineries and tank farms in California. First, California has made it economically impossible to operate a tank farm if one doesn't have system barrels. That's barrels from your own refinery. Operating a refinery in California is roughly 165% more expensive relative to Texas or Louisiana. Adding on a terminal date for the demand of the refined products from these refineries, and you can get an eventual death sentence for the industry, which then begs a few more questions. With no production or distribution of diesel, how will tractors be powered? California's agriculture business is $50 billion. Texas, Florida, and Mexico will be happy to take that over. How will any trucking take place? As an example, LA and San Francisco are a five-hour drive apart. The current state of truck batteries is two hours at best. So that's three full charges just to make that trip. Along a similar line, how will any rail be possible? Locomotives run on diesel. Can they carry enough to get in and out of California? How will any of California's huge ports function? Certainly ships can carry enough fuel to get in and out. But where will the tugboats, pilots, and stevedoring boats get their fuel? Finally, with no refining or tank farms, where will California's airports get the jet fuel? China and South Korea will be more than happy to supply. But how will it get into the country? Or be distributed. No doubt this wave of electric or hybrid vehicles is coming. Certainly it's going to take a while. The question is, how much damage will politicians do who don't understand the importance of ecosystems? This is innovation's dark side. I understand that California migration was a net loss to the state a few years ago. I imagine that's the same now and perhaps accelerating. So what do you have for Mexico? So if I can't get science geeky, I'm going full history geek. Here we go. In an eerily similar fashion, Pemex and innovation in the Mexican oil business is following a similar path to the decline of one of the greatest cultures the world has ever seen. Hang with me here. 
The Mayan civilization lasted 7,500 years from about 6,000 BC until Hernan Cortez made a house call in 1521 AD. The period I want to focus on is roughly from 250 AD to 950 AD. These 700 years, the Mayan civilization was at its most productive peak. However, what gave them their greatest strength ultimately provide, proved to be their downfall. The Mayan nation formed as a group of loosely affiliated tribes that banded together for the good of the nation. Similar to when Mexico nationalized its oil business in 1938 in the presence of foreigners seemingly getting all the benefits of Mexican oil. Mayan society was ruled by the ritual authority of the king. Ritual authority meant his actions were limited to the traditions of construction, religious ritual, and warfare. They were very good at all three of those. What this structure was not very good at was responding to change, and this only exacerbated the systematic problems and eventual decline. Fast forward a millennia, and we get to modern-day Pemex. As I mentioned, Pemex was constitutionally formed in 1938. In 1965, the entire world was responding to President Kennedy's moonshot speech from a few years earlier. Science was all of a sudden cool. <laughs> I know, right? I'm sure they didn't believe it either. Pemex, like everyone else, was setting up a research and development group, Instituto Mexicano del Petróleo, IMP. What a great idea. Get all the best minds in one place and let the innovation flow. And it did for a while. However, as we saw in California, there are some unintended consequences of ritual, or constitutional, bequeathment of power. First off, the IMP was, and is still, far too close to the capital and politicians in Mexico City. And I'm sure we're all familiar with the problems that brings. Like the Mayans, when the IMP was formed, Pemex was very good at three things, exploration, production, and exporting oil. Politicians almost ritually pushed the IMP into everything they could do to enhance current exports at the expense of future innovations. So applied research over the leapfrog kind of basic research like we saw in Canada. Eventually, this short-term approach gives way to relying on foreign technology to stay current. So the benefits accrue elsewhere. Hmm. That was why the Mayans got together in the first place. And then acting as a tailor of technology, stitching together other technologies, instead of a weaver of technology, creating one's own, one forgets how to weave. And so they did. Because the central figure, IMP, had the funding and mandate, universities had no incentive to get into petroleum innovation. This has caused a lot of ripples. Only have time to talk about two, though. Since there was very limited academic research, generally the birthplace of leapfrog technology, Mexico never developed the culture of innovation outside the IMP, and therefore not much intellectual property, or even the skill set to develop develop intellectual property. As a corollary, no university development means no training of the next generation. Any institutional knowledge 
will be lost upon retirement. The point of all this, Mexico is far behind concerning innovation in the oil industry. However, after reopening the industry in 2013, they have adopted a more balanced approach between basic and applied research and are making headway. It will take some time and maybe a study of history. So, Corey, the most significant producer in South America is Brazil. I'd assume that you're seeing most of the innovation there. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right, Jim. Uh, but before we dig into the details of our theme today, some things worth mentioning. Petrobras has resumed trading with the big trading houses, Vital, Trafigura, and Glencore, after almost two years not doing so because of investigations into the companies under Operation Car Wash. Essentially, the investigations stemmed from an alleged $31 million in bribes from traders at those companies to Petrobras insiders. Operation Car Wash is, is a complex animal, full of twists and turns, so we won't dive too deep there other than to say that earlier this month, the Brazilian Attorney General's offices extended Operation Car Wash, the largest ever corruption probe, until end January 2021. And with that, more international companies have come under its reach. This week, Seadrill and Sapura. For a period a couple of years ago, Seadrill's stock price was closely correlated to that of crude. So you could trade Seadrill as a proxy for crude if you wanted to avoid the futures markets. But I digress. Operation Car Wash will continue to exact influence on Brazilian energy and international players who operate there. So, innovation and change. Petrobras' current debt load is $87.3 billion U.S. billion, and the goal is to reduce that debt to $60 billion for 2022 and to prioritize projects with a break-even of no more than $35 a barrel Brent. Okay, thus, Buzios and other pre-salt now represents over two-thirds of the company's total exploration production investment for the 2021-2025 to planning period. That's up from about 59% from the year-ago plan. In fact, by the end of the 2020s, Petrobras expects to have 12 FPSOs installed and producing at the Buzios field. And production will be 2 million barrels per day from its current 600,000 barrels per day production. This is not far-fetched. The company is already operating four in the area, has one under construction, three under contract, and is evaluating the remaining four. FPSOs, floating production storage and offloading vessels. They're fairly common in the world, but we typically give them cursory mentions as there are only two operating in the Gulf of Mexico. This is due to a couple of reasons. Namely, one, the Gulf of Mexico is more conducive to having pipelines laid on its floor. And two, shuttle vessels are subject to the Jones Act. A Gulf of Mexico FPSO that comes to mind for me is Turatella in Shell Stones Project. as is the world's deepest production unit, 9,500 feet. It produces 60,000 barrels a day. Petrobras operates more FPSOs than any other company, and if you compare Turatilla's 60,000 barrel per day production with the capabilities of Petrobras' planned FPSOs for Buzios, well, Petrobras has you beat. Each FPSO will produce between 180 and 200,000 barrels per day of crude. The FPSOs currently operating have a capacity of about 150,000 barrels a day. FPSOs have been used since the 1970s allow production in areas where infrastructure is sparse, can be moved more easily elsewhere when a field is depleted, and in some cases allows the movement of the vessel to and fro when inclement weather arises. The FPSOs currently operating Buzios for conversions of former VLCCs. 
Petrobras has recently been recognized for its advancements in regards to Buzios. This goes largely to cost savings efforts to ultimately make Brazilian production more competitive, optimizing mooring systems on each FPSO to reduce material, create better control against FPSO movement, and a better position the vessel relative to the wells. Each FPSO is currently tied into four wells. Another advancement is Petrobras's use of flexible production risers to help to manage CO2 in the field's gas and to ultimately allow flow rates above 60,000 barrels per day. And finally, the use of water alternating gas, um, WAG manifolds, to split the oil and gas production and redistribute to the gas back to the well to enhance liquids recovery. Petrobras, in regards to Buzios and other discoveries, has also partnered with other companies and educational institutions to 3D model the ocean floor and better plan for future exploration and production activities. Of all Petrobras's goals, the first of its long-term plan is to, quote, remain at the forefront of deepwater technological knowledge, end quote. Oh, man, that's great. So I understand that Columbia has put some priority on innovation. Uh, yes. So when we think of Columbia, we think of Echo Patrol. And this year, the company has put almost $130 million and have dedicated a team towards digitalization. The company is using blockchain to track production through refining and using AI for crude exploration and drilling activities. Okay, so what you say? You know, blockchain is just a distributed ledger and AI is becoming more common across all industries. Well, okay, fine. What about nanotechnology? Columbia has the first patent in the world to produce oil with nanoparticles. So it's not nanotechnology we think of with tiny robots taking over spaceships. You know, Star Trek fans will appreciate that. But the short description is that Echo Patrol is injecting nanofluid, engineered gladial suspensions of nanoparticles made from metals, carbides, etc., into wells, and that nanofluid selectively captures the asphaltines in the pores of rock that restrict crude production. The nanofluid is actually cheaper than using other processes, so Echo Patrol's cost of production, with widespread use of nanotechnology, will fall. And finally, to round out Echo Patrol, a couple of months ago, they signed into a partnership with Plug and Play. Plug and Play essentially connects larger companies with innovative startups. So Echo Patrol is looking at the future, connecting with new technologies to develop its resources and take part in the energy transition. So Jim, closing thoughts. So we got to look at some pretty incredible innovation happening in the oil patch. We also saw the law of unintended consequence that can creep into the world of innovation when leaders lose sight of the big picture. Next week, Corey and I will be talking about the impact of influence and corruption in the oil business. All right. Thanks, Jim. Have a great week.